Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Uh, one more quick thing that I forgot to mention earlier with regard to announcements. We're doing our, uh, uh, we're going to do a church fellowship, morning service, afternoon service, uh, sorry, morning service, and then a meal, and then an afternoon service next Sunday. And so if you'd like to sign up to bring something, something the sign-up sheet's there in the back. And if you're not able to bring something, you're still welcome to come. But I just want to remind you that we're doing that meal together next Sunday. As we wrap up our study of Leviticus, I wanted to make a brief comment about how we should view and use the Bible, especially the law. Hopefully as we've gone through it, you've seen that it's relevant and applicable even for today. But uh, in light of a conversation that I had with a stranger earlier this week, and even after starting to teach uh, 1 Timothy, to the 8th graders on Friday, I wanted to share with you Paul's warning to Timothy concerning the law. What's the danger for the church when we learn more about the Bible? In Timothy's day, there were false teachers who were plaguing the church at Ephesus. They were focused on myths and endless genealogies. They were proudly wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And then Paul says to Timothy, The law is good if one uses it lawfully. It is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. So what then should we learn from our study of Leviticus, or from any book of the Bible, but particularly those that contain God's law? The purpose of it is that we should be convicted of our sin. To see that by nature we are lawless and rebellious, that we need to repent of our pride and fling ourselves on God's mercy. We should never use God's law as a weapon against another Christian or even an unbeliever. Instead, we must humbly submit to what God has said, get the law out of our own eyes so that we can graciously help one another out of the quagmire of sin and not to use it to, to kick someone when they're down, to show off our superior knowledge. This is something for which Paul rebuked the Corinthians. And so... This is a danger for us, I think, in churches that have been well taught and have encountered God's Word, that we equate degree of knowledge with level of maturity, or that we uh, feel that if we know more, we are better than the other person, or we feel that if we uh, have this knowledge, we should use it to show off how much we know, right? And none of those is an appropriate response to God's Word. How then are we to understand this final chapter of Leviticus as we, as we wrap up our study through this book? God demands that you pay your vows, that you keep your promises. Why does keeping vows matter? Well, ultimately, because what is vowed is holy before the Lord, and God is witness to the vow. But let's explore that further through this chapter. First of all, we see that God assigns value to what is promised or owed to Him in the entire chapter, but particularly in the first few verses. People could be promised or owed to God. The lives of the people, we see the section that Sam read there for us, uh, were assigned various value depending on their age. And that was not a measure of intrinsic worth. It's not saying old people are worth less than young people, women are worth less than men, in terms of their intrinsic value as people but it seems to have been measured 
by their relative ability to serve in various capacities at the temple. Now, at the tabernacle and then later the temple. Now, the point of this is not that there was a practice of non-Levites serving at the temple, but rather it appears that there was a practice of someone potentially who was not a Levite promising themselves to the Lord, but then the expectation is that they would redeem the value of their service with money. So they would give themselves, but because they were not qualified to serve in the tabernacle, they would instead pay an equivalent amount of money for the, to substitute for their service in the temple. We saw something that sort of echoes this back in Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, when they took a census, the people were to be numbered. Everyone who was numbered was to give half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. So there were times in which this applied to everyone in the congregation of the Israelites, but it was a much smaller amount. This was a voluntary vow or commitment of someone, and they would pay the various amounts, the 30 shekels, the 20 shekels, and so forth. Rarely, someone would be, would actually vow a person in service to the tabernacle, and the person would actually serve that out, right? The only example that I can think of offhand would be someone like Samuel, right? Hannah makes her vow before the Lord, and Samuel actually serves in the tabernacle. He is able and allowed to do so, and he serves out his whole life in connection with his mother's vow. Normally, the money would be paid at the end of the vow, but in the case of lifelong service, there was no opportunity to pay the money. The person would just fulfill it. Samson was supposed to be one of these people who God involuntarily said, you're going to be a Nazarite. You're going to be dedicated to me, right? But we know from Samson life, Samson's life, there was a number of occasions where he did not live up to what God had dedicated him to be and do. The more common example that I think we would see would be the short-term vows of a Nazarite. Payment would be made at the end of the period in which they had vowed. For example, in Numbers chapter 6 or um, Acts uh, 21, we see something of this where Paul had made a vow and then he cuts his hair and people argue about whether it was a Nazarite vow or another vow, but the point was it was for a certain time period. The sign that it was completed was a cutting of the hair, a making of an offering at the temple, a paying of money, and this was a common practice in the lives of the Israelites. So people could be offered to God in this way. Secondly, we see that animals could be offered to God. Animals would be offered as a sacrifice, and so because they could be offered as a sacrifice, they would not be redeemed. Well, why? Well, once the animal is sacrificed, it can't be redeemed, right? So they would give it the animal, it would be sacrificed, right? Uh, however, it says that he shall not replace it or exchange it. If he, if he tries to take it back, then in essence he's going to give two animals to the Lord instead of one, right? So the principle here, I think, is that one could give more but not less of what had been promised to God, right? You could not go back on your word of what you had offered to God. Unclean animals obviously couldn't be offered as offerings, right? And so if you vowed an animal and perhaps either due to not being familiar with the law, the person didn't realize it was an unclean animal, or if that was all he had to offer, he offered the unclean animal, then basically it would either be sold for market value and the money would go to the tabernacle, or he would say, I'm giving it to the Lord 
he would buy it back himself and add a fifth to the price of it and then keep the animal because it was unclean, couldn't be offered. Houses or lands could be promised to God. The value of houses or lands was tied to the crops and the years relative to the jubilee. We saw this before uh, when we were looking at the, the rules about the jubilee. After the jubilee, or if it was sold to another person, it could no longer be redeemed. So this was one of the exceptions in which something did not return to the original owner in the jubilee. It, was, it became the property of the priests. Now, what about the firstborn of animals? Well, the firstborn of animals, verse 26, could not be um, dedicated to God. Couldn't be vowed to God. Why? Because there was this principle that it already belonged to God. And this goes back to um, the idea of the Passover in which God required the firstborn. Back in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. been a while since we looked at Exodus, but you're probably familiar with the idea. The Lord said to Moses, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. And so since the firstborn of people and the firstborn of animals was God's, you couldn't promise it to God because God had already laid claim on it, right? Um, The firstborn of unclean animals also belonged to God, verse 27, but for similar reasons it could not be offered as a sacrifice, and so the, the principle was to redeem it and to add 20% or the money it would be sold and the money would go to the tabernacle. So these were the rules about the valuation of things where people dedicated something voluntarily to God. What could you dedicate? When you dedicate it? What were you supposed to do? And so on and so forth. Were there things that could not be redeemed? Were there cases Uh, other cases that were not really voluntary but were more involuntary situations. So secondly, God required unwavering commitment to keep vows about things devoted to Him. Now, we'll see a transition that's not immediately obvious in verse 28 where it says, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord, anything devoted to destruction, no one who may have been set apart. And so, it sounds like it's all the same thing. Someone makes a vow, this belongs to God, he gives it to God. Here, it says this idea of set apart, but it says, can't be redeemed. If it's a person, the person is going to be put to death. It seems puzzling. Why, why this difference? Well, there's a different Hebrew word that's being used here. And the Hebrew word that's being used here is connected with what we see, for example, in the book of Joshua, with the cities of Jericho and Ai, things that are put under the ban. And the idea was this. God could declare people or animals or the contents of an entire city to be holy to the Lord. What that meant, in turn, was you can't take it for your own. Right? You can't take it for your own. You can't substitute anything for it. You can't say, well, you know, it seems kind of a waste to put this entire group of people to death, even though God said He's carrying out judgment on them. Let's keep some of them to be our servants. Let's keep some of them as prisoners of war. Let's keep some of them to make an example of them, right? 
So where do we see this? Well, we see it in Joshua 5 and 6. God says, don't take any spoils of war from the city of Ai. Don't take any spoils of war from the city of Jericho. The only person who is not under the ban, not holy to the Lord, not to be put to death, is Rahab and her family, right, from the city of Jericho. Well, why were the Israelites defeated at the city of Jericho at first? Well, the reason they're defeated the first time at the city of Jericho is because at the city of Ai, what does Achan do? Achan takes some of the things that were supposed to be dedicated to God. He takes them for himself. He hides them in his tent. He says, these are mine now. So it's almost like he had gone into the temple treasury and stolen something out of that and took it home and said, this is mine now. That's how God viewed it. And so Achan's sin was not that he took spoils of war because God allowed that on other occasions. Achan's sin was God said, this entire city and its contents are holy to me. The possessions go to the temple. The animals and the people are to be put to death. And Achan said, I'm going to do my own thing. And that's why he himself and his family faces death for his sin in that case. Uh, we see this same kind of idea um, later on in uh, the prophets. For example, in Micah 4.13, there's sort of an echo of this idea where it says, the possessions of the ungodly are holy to the Lord. They'll be set apart for God's use, and God's going to take them from the ungodly and grant them to the righteous to be used for His purpose. Now, certainly, uh, I don't see in that a justification for us to say, well, this person's an unbeliever. We're going to go take all their stuff, and now it's ours, and we're going to use it for the church. But rather, God has the right and the authority of what belongs to Him to have the ungodly store up wealth and for him then to take it and transfer it and use it for his purposes because it all belongs to him in the first place. So we see this idea of devoted to destruction, this different word, something that could not be substituted, something that could not be redeemed, something that could not be claimed by an individual. But then we come to this difficult part where it says, no one, verse 29, who's been set apart among men shall be ransomed, he shall surely be put to death. And this is the one where we really struggle, right? Because you see it in the Old Testament. It's connected with this idea of, was it right for God to tell the Israelites to wipe out entire groups of people? Today, we see similar things, at least at first glance, and they're considered to be genocide, right? The wiping out of an entire group of people by another group of people. What is different between what God had told the Israelites to do and what has happened in various countries in the Middle East, Eastern Europe, a variety of places in the modern age? And the answer is this. Those countries saw particular groups of people as a threat, perhaps to their national identity, but more often to their power. They used their position to create a situation of oppression, and to then wipe out those people, use them as slaves, etc. The difference between that and what God had the Israelites to do was, God had said, the land of Canaan belongs to Abraham and to his descendants forever. God sends Abraham and his descendants, Jacob's family, down to Egypt. The, the inhabitants of Canaan have 400 years, four generations, and as they are living in the land, what do they continue to do? As they live in the land, they continue to commit idolatry. They continue to commit immorality. 
they continue to prey on one another, they continue to oppress one another, they continue to do all manner of things that are wicked. And so God basically says, the time period for your wickedness has expired, my people are coming in, and they are going to carry out my judgment on you. No modern-day human government or group of people has God's divine authorization to come out and take out another group of people to wipe them out. The motivations for groups doing that today are sinful motivations. These people don't look like me. These people believe a different religion. The, the Crusades of the Middle Ages are a perfect example of this. People say, oh, well, well, well Christians, admittedly the Catholic Church, um, they went and they wiped out all these groups of people for no good reason. Yes, that was wrong. They should not have do, done that. As much as these pagan kings thought they had God's authorization to do that, they did not. What they did was sinful. What they did was wrong, right? What, uh, what China and other places are doing to people of, of various ethnicities and faiths is wrong. What has happened in a variety of other places around the world is wrong. People don't have justification to do this. But in the case where God said... Here is a group of sinners that I am carrying out my wrath against. Do exactly what I say. We should not be like Saul. What did Saul say? Saul said, I'm going to keep the best of the cattle and the sheep and the goats, and we're going to make them sacrifices. God, I know you said, get rid of all of them, kill them all, but we're instead going to offer them as sacrifices to you because clearly you would like that better. I know you said to kill all the people, but we're going to keep this, this pagan king of the Amalekites because that's just what you do. You keep the king as a trophy of war. Maybe you torture him a little bit. You make an example of him. And clearly that's a better plan than the thing that you specifically told me to do, God. What was the result of that for Saul? It cost him his kingship. God's wrath was on him. God's wrath had been on the Amalekites God's wrath was turned on Saul because Saul didn't do what God said to do to the Amalekites. What was Saul's excuse? This ties in well with our Wednesday night study. I was afraid of what the people would say. They were too strong for me. They said we should do this instead. Was that really true? No. The people loved Saul. He was the handsome king, the strong king, the great example, at least at first. They really liked Saul. They followed his leadership. So Saul trying to pass it off on the people was just an excuse. Saul did what Saul wanted to do, which was not what God said to do. And in tying it back to this passage here, those who were devoted to destruction by God could not be ransomed. They were to be put to death, whether captured in battle or as murderers. There's several examples there in the book of Numbers. At this point, it would probably also be helpful to discuss the case of Jephthah. You're probably familiar with that story from the book of Judges. A time in which people did whatever was right in their own eyes. Jephthah says, God, you give me victory over my enemies. The first thing that wanders out of my house will be offered up as a burnt offering to you. There's a lot of people who read that passage and then see what it says later. And they say, well, I know it says Jephthah was going to offer up his daughter as a burnt offering. But... Really, I think that he made her a sort of a nun and she couldn't have kids, and so that's why she weeps over the fact that 
that she's still a virgin, never married, and so forth, right at the end of the chapter. Consider the context. People did what was right in their own eyes. They said things like, well, God said we should have a priest. I'm going to make this random guy who wanders by my house a priest. Then God will bless me because I have a priest. So they're taking thing, bits and pieces of what God had said and doing their own thing with them. So I think it was very likely, in fact, I'm confident that what happened with Jephthah was that he sacrificed his daughter in a misguided understanding of a passage like this that says, keep your vows to God, in a misguided understanding of the idea that if someone was dedicated or devoted to God for destruction, they had to be put to death. And regardless of the fact that his daughter was the innocent victim of his selfish and foolish vow. What was the result of that? God gave him victory and it became an occasion for sorrow in the ending of his family line. So the first case that we see in Leviticus 27, voluntary vows. The second case, things devoted or dedicated to God for destruction. They were to be holy for the Lord, put in the temple treasury in the case of objects or money or possessions, put to death in the case of animals or people. The third case that we see, or group of things in Leviticus 27, was the tithe that God required of the Israelites. What were the rules for that? It is holy to the Lord. And it was basically like this. For seed, you measured out every tenth part of it. For animals, you would just make the animals walk by the shepherd, and every tenth one, this one goes to God. Every tenth one, this one goes to God. For purposes of the tithe, it's very interesting that it says he's not to be concerned whether it's good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Now, when it says exchange it, it seems to contradict what it says in verse 31. If he redeems it, he shall add one-fifth. If he exchanges it, then it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. So here's what I think was going on. The tenth one is your prize bull or ram or whatever, right? And you say, you know what? I need this to be able to breed my, my oxen, my sheep. So what am I going to do? I'm going to take it, add 20% of the value, and dedicate that money to the temple. That, God says that's acceptable. But if you said, this is my prize bull or my prize ram, I don't want to give God that one. I'm going to go pick the one that the, the bear tore up last year, and I'm going to substitute that for it instead. I'm going to exchange it, and I'm not going to pay God any money. What was the result? the one that was supposed to be God's, and the, the bad one that you were giving as a substitute, now both of them belong to God. So God set up a mechanism by which they could redeem something from the tithe, and God, but God did not say, you can just skip out on it and give me something worse. Because we see that attitude later in the book of Malachi. We see that on a number of occasions where the people just said, we're not going to give the tithe to God at all. So the principle was, you can redeem it and add more to the value if you really, really need it, right? But you cannot substitute something worse for it and act like God's going to be happy with that. How do we apply all these things today? We don't vow ourselves in service to the temple or the tabernacle because there is no temple or tabernacle. We don't, as I was saying a few moments ago, have the idea of something being devoted to destruction, holy to the Lord, because again, there's no temple treasury to put it in. There's no just war that God has 
appointed us to carry out against unbelievers. And as we've talked before on previous occasions with regard to the tithe, the tithe was a kind of a tax that God put on the ethnic national group of Israelites to provide for a subset of their number, the Levites, who didn't have a regular inheritance among the people. So God provided for them through the tithe, and some of it went in sacrifices and offerings, and some of it went to the support of the Levites. And it was much more parallel to our modern-day income tax than it was to the giving that we do to the church. Because it was something you had to do, right? It wasn't, it wasn't voluntary, right? What we do in the church has more in common with the voluntary promising of things to God that we see throughout this chapter than it did with the tithe. So what, what application should we make from this passage? God still demands what is promised to him today, by vows or just by making a promise. So since you belong to God, fulfill your service to him. And this is where there are parallels to the first part of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body, because you belong to Him. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 says, Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service to God. So, in what sense do we promise ourselves to God? In the sense that, ironically, we are already His, right? So like the firstborn that already belonged to God, we are already belonged to God, we already belong to God, so we don't need to offer ourselves again, but rather follow through on the commitment that we already owe, right? So we don't need to vow ourselves to God. I'm, I'm going to be God. I'm going to serve Him as a monk. I'm going to serve Him as a nun. I'm going to serve Him as a, a holy person. The Bible says, you already belong to God. Jesus redeemed you. You're God's. So serve Him. What does that look like? An ongoing thing. It wasn't like, I serve God for a year, and then my vow is up, and I, I shave my hair like the Nazarites did, and I pay my vow, and then I go on with my life. If you are Christ, you've been bought with a price, all of you belongs to God for your whole life, and you owe Him your service. So serve Him, right? Secondly, since God is witness, don't make foolish promises. Don't make foolish promises and a misunderstanding of something being devoted to God like it seems Jephthah had. Don't make foolish promises like we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 where someone said, I'm going to give this to the temple and the representative of the Levites comes to collect it and the person says, I changed my mind. God's not pleased with that, right? So we need to keep our promises. The righteous swears to his own hurt and does not deviate from it. You'll see that in Psalm 15 and other places. Jesus says in the New Testament, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this leads you to judgment. So practical application. Don't make impossible commitments. I've heard examples. I think there was a preacher one time who says, I vowed to my wife, I was going to wash the dishes every night of our marriage. There's a lot of things that could cause you not to be able to fulfill that. It, it, outwardly, it sounds like a nice gesture. Realistically, if you're not going to do it, you shouldn't promise it, right? If you make commitments, and I think this is especially important when we make commitments to our kids, do your best to follow through on them. 
kids do a great job of remembering the things that we say we're going to do, even if they don't always do a great job of remembering the things we say they should do, right? So if we say, clean your room and take out the trash, they might forget. But if we say we're going to the park, they are not going to forget that, right? Don't say you're going to go to the park if you have no intention of doing it. Don't say we're going to do this and this and this and this and then fail to follow through because that series of compounded disappointments creates bitterness. Now, do they have a responsibility for how they feel about it before God? Yes. But don't, fathers, stir up your children to wrath by failing to keep your promises. This happens in the context of promises we make to adults as well. Here's, how the, here's the form that I see it taking a lot with regard to adults. It's not, hey, we're going to go to the park, and then we come up with an excuse why we're not going to go to the park. I'm tired, I don't feel like it, I don't want to, whatever, right? I'm not talking about being providentially hindered. You're going to go to the park, and it started, there's a huge thunderstorm with lightning and hail and whatever, and it's not wise. That's a different sort of a thing. I'm just saying you make a promise, and then you just change your mind. As adults, it looks like this. I commit to do something maybe with one friend or one group of people, and then something else comes up. Someone offers you tickets to a baseball game, or someone says, hey, let's do this. You're like, that sounds way more fun than this thing I said I would do. And then we tend to sort of kind of lie to get our way out of the first thing that we don't want to do anymore. Or we don't ever want to commit, right? So on the one extreme, you have the foolish gesture that is unrealistic to keep. I'm going to wash the dishes every night for the rest of my life. On the other hand, you have a complete, and this is where a lot of people are today, a complete unwillingness to ever commit to anything. The biblical idea lies in between those. The best of my ability, I will fulfill what I promise, but I will actually promise some things. I will actually follow through on what I say I will do, right? So here's, here's, the, here's how I would sum it up. Let your word be trusted in a fickle and untrustworthy society. This is an opportunity for you and I to be a testimony to the world around us if we actually do what we say we're going to do. If, if we find that we cannot do it, that we let people know honestly. I mean, uh, think about this in the context of, um, I don't know if you've ever sold anything online, right? Hey, I'm selling a chair. You want to come get it? Yes, I'll come get it. Three hours later, the person hasn't shown up. Where were you? I changed my mind. You know, That's just how people are in the world, right? And if we act that way, then we're no different from the world around us. And the more encounters that we have like that with people, the less opportunities that we have to be a good witness and testimony to them. But if we fulfill our word, we say we're going to be somewhere and we're there. We say we're going to do something and we do it, whether that be at work or just generally in the course of life, that gives us an opportunity to be a good testimony to the world around us, and more importantly, to show them a picture of what God is like. God keeps his word. He expects his people to do it as well. And then perhaps one of the most important examples of uh, the idea of vows today. Going back to that idea I said at the very beginning of something is holy because... God sees it, and it's spoken before him. Most of us in this room are married, have been married, or will be married. There are exceptions, and I'm not saying that they're 
they're sinful, but I'm saying that's the case for most people in this room. It's a commitment before God. As solemn and as sober, perhaps even more so than people offering their goods and services and everything else before God in Leviticus 27. So what does Ephesians 5 say? Ephesians 5 says, this is a picture of Christ in the church. Husbands, love your wives as yourselves. Or rather, in that passage, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And as we talked about in Sunday school, the Bible is full of impossible ideals that in our human strength we will fail, and we will fail, and we will fail, and we will fail. Not a one of the men in this room can keep their vows apart from God's help. And even with God's help, sometimes we fail to live up to what we have said we would do. The same for wives as well. But particularly, I think, the responsibility I would stress to the men who are husbands in this room. What else do we see? Hebrews 13. We, ought, we like to quote the part where it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? We don't like to quote the part just before that that says, God treats marriage as holy, so you treat it holy too, or God will call you into judgment. God is always there. God is always watching. God always knows. So husbands, if it's not enough motivation to say you have the opportunity to be a picture of Christ in the church and the way that you live your marriage, do it because God will judge you if you don't live up to what you've promised. So what do we see then from the New Testament with regard to this important vow that is still practiced today and that should be fulfilled? Husbands, love your wives and dwell with them in an understanding way, no matter how imperfect you think they are. Ephesians 5 doesn't give exceptions and be like, love your wives as Christ loved the church, unless your wife makes a noise that you don't like when you're trying to snooze in the morning. Husbands, love your wife unless she forgets your favorite food and doesn't make it for your birthday. Husbands, love your wife, except for these days of the week. Love your wife when you're in public, but in private, do whatever you want. That is not what God says. God says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do I live up to that? I have room to grow. Do you live up to that? You have room to grow. Fulfill the vow that you've made before God to love your wife. And the, all of the principles of the New Testament that say, do this. Wives, submit to and respect your husbands even if they don't seem to deserve that respect. Now, there are limits to this. There are situations in churches where pastors have basically said, unless he cheats on you with another woman... Or unless he walks out the door and never comes back, you're stuck with him, you've got to stay with him. I think that there are a number of things that men can do that violate their marriage vows and destroy the marriage, and that the church should treat as matters of church discipline, and that husbands should not feel like they have a free pass as long as they avoid the two exceptions. 
at the same time, there is an attitude in our culture that says, wives, if you don't feel like your husband is doing every last thing you ever hoped and dreamed that he would do because of this book that you read or this movie that you saw or this ideal that you had as a little kid, you don't have to respect him. You don't have to do what God calls you to do. The Bible actually says the opposite. It says you can minister to and bring even an unbelieving husband to repentance by your good testimony before God. So, abuse is unacceptable, but imperfection is a part of life, and a wife needs to continue to submit to and respect her husband even though he is imperfect. For husbands and wives together, for all of us in the church, we need to take marriage seriously in a godless society that basically views it like those coupons you get in the mail that have an expiration date and as soon as they hit the expiration date you throw them away this is the pattern for marriage in our society you get married you stick with it for a year two years five years maybe ten it's done you don't love each other anymore you move on Jesus says, this is a lifelong commitment. God's design is one man, one woman, for life, unless death parts you. Now, are there exceptions in a sinful world? Yes. Am I trying to guilt people who have gone through the heartache of some of those, the brokenness of sinfulness in our world? No. But at the same time, we tend to have a very low view of marriage because that's what our society has. And if we're going to make a commitment before God, let me talk to the kids for a minute. If you're going to marry someone, see it as a sober and lifelong commitment. Don't just marry that person because they're handsome or beautiful. Don't just marry them because they have a good job. Don't just marry them because you like to spend time with them. Recognize that this is a serious thing that you are committing to before God, and so if you're going to fulfill it, you are going to absolutely need God's help. It should not be entered into lightly. There should be much advice from your family and your church. And recognize that just like God held the Israelites to their promises in the Old Testament, God will hold you to yours. You belong to God. Like the Israelites who promised themselves in service to the temple and then either fulfilled it or substituted monetary payment, we have our lives in service to God. Like the people who made difficult promises and were still supposed to follow through on them that we see in this passage, God calls us to be people who can be trusted, people who reflect the honesty and truth of God. And like those who have responsibilities before God, we too have responsibilities for God, particularly and especially in the context of our marriages. So what does God require of us according to this passage? Keep your vows. Keep your promises. God's watching. God knows. And God will hold us to them. Let's pray. Lord, as we wrap up here at the book of Leviticus, there have been a number of truths that we've looked at. 
I pray that you would help us to let them sink into our souls. Most importantly, that your spirit would work to convict us because apart from your sustaining power, we can, we can sort of have this attitude of, oh, here's something I need to work on or I need to turn over a new leaf or I need to fix it. And, and our, our resolve will waver. Our, um, we just won't follow through on what we have decided we should do. Maybe because we don't actually believe it within ourselves. Maybe because we don't actually want it at some level. But you have the power and the ability to change our thinking to match your word, our desires to match what you say we should want, and our actions to be pleasing to you. From sin to obedience, from the works of the flesh to the works of the Spirit. So Lord, we pray for your help in these things. Lord, we know that none of this is possible apart from Jesus. If we want to see an example of someone who fulfilled his responsibility before you, no matter how much it cost him, we have only to look at Jesus going to the cross in the agony, but the obedience that he fulfilled in that moment. And so, Lord, he as our high priest gives us the strength and the help to do what you have called us to do. Lord, help us to serve you wholeheartedly, to live honestly before you, and to fulfill the promises that we make, especially in the context of our marriages. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.